0: start this morning with a question that you are often not encouraged to think about at church. And that question is this. What kind of person in your honest moments do you genuinely despise? What kind of person by the the nature of what they do the, the pain they inflict on other people, the decisions that they make, and the, and the ramifications that have, that has for often very innocent bystanders. What are the kinds of people that you, when you think about, your stomach churns? Or maybe you can think of people you've known in your life you'd never admit this, but you say, when I think about that person or these people, man, I struggled a long time because I hated their guts. Like, my disdain for them was so much more than just, oh, I don't really, I prefer not to be around them. There was a revulsion. Your stomach would churn over the thought of having to see them. Maybe it was uh, someone in school or someone at work. Maybe it was someone that lived close to you. Maybe it was someone within uh, your extended family. Today's scripture features someone who is despised by a huge amount of people. And this person who is despised, we read he has this encounter with Jesus. This person's name is Levi. And looking looking at what happens and studying what happens when Levi encounters Jesus is tremendously instructive for us in terms of helping us to understand the nature of the gospel, the nature of grace, what it means to follow Jesus today. This is a two short accounts back-to-back, but powerful, powerful, powerful. I'm going to break this passage into two parts because there's kind of two focal points that Mark uses to first the calling of Levi and then this this dinner party that happens at Levi's house. The first thing I want to talk about is Jesus calling Levi. Levi is a tax collector. And if you don't know much about tax collectors in the first century it's very very important to understand that context otherwise kind of the gut punch of this entire encounter with Jesus kind of gets lost on you. This becomes just another person who Jesus said come follow me and he did. It's like okay I guess that's good. Under the Romans when Romans occupy Israel there was a change in how taxation was done whereby what would happen is they had tax-collecting booths that would be set up at critical waypoints. So when you moved around, traveled to see family or to go to Jerusalem for religious observances or just move from one territory into another, along kind of the highways and the byways, there were these tax booths, toll stations essentially is what they were. You go to a big city, I remember going to New York, and it feels like you hit like five toll stations before you can get into downtown New York City. It's going to economic death by a thousand pinpricks. And and what happened is Rome said, we're setting these up. You can become a tax collector. It's open to the highest bidder. And so what would happen is you had a little advertisement in the Roman Daily Star News. And it said, here are the booths that are opening up, the tolls, taxation toll stations that are opening up. And here's the date. And you come and you bid. And all Rome cared about is every tolling station has to recoup El a number, I'd say a million dollars a year in taxation. As a tax collector, if you get that toll booth, anything above that that you make as gravy, that's yours. You get to keep it. And that's how you're going to pay for this initial um, uh, bidding war that inevitably happened. So a few things to note there. Number one, if you were a tax collector it was because you were already wealthy enough to outbid other people who wanted access to an extortion scheme that would allow them to make more money so if you're a tax collector you have a tremendous amount of wealth already now you're in a situation where you can leverage that wealth into more wealth because Rome's not going to care really as long as you're within reason. Uh, if you take, you know, if, if, if you've figured out in your mind's eye, I need about two bucks per person in order to honor my contract with Rome, <coughs> then I'm going to charge four or five. And people can't say anything because you're a representative of the state. You're a representative of the empire. And you might not get passage. You might get uh, Roman soldiers kind of tasked on you for not obeying the law, even though it's, of a gray area, whether it was really legal to extort that much. Now, what you need to know at this time is that the average Jewish person was already being taxed, this is baseline tax we're talking about, 10% tithe of all their crop earnings, what we would think of as income, 10% right away goes to uh, the the priesthood and the betterment of the temple. You also had temple taxes, which was about beautification of, of the temple. In addition to this, um, you had one-third of your grain had to be taxed and given over to Rome, and about half of any fruit grown on your property. So when you gather up all these taxes, you're looking at somewhere between 60 to 75% tax. And then when Roman institutes these tax-collecting toll booths, that's another tax that really doesn't have anybody overseeing it you're really at the mercy of someone. It would be like me walking around Nelson and having the authority to stop you in the car and saying, yeah, you know what, where are you heading today? Oh, you're going to Castlegar? Yeah, you, get, you need to pay a $5 toll, otherwise I'm going to call the, uh, the, the bylaw officers and we're going to have your car towed. You didn't really have much of a recourse. So think about that. Think about the, the kind of economic exploitation that was happening at this time, especially for Jewish people who thought this isn't right. This is an unjust system. We want God to set up his government. We don't want Rome to be in charge. All Rome does is bully and exploit people. So this is another factor why by the first century, there were so many people hungering for the kingdom of God to come. Because when God's kingdom comes, surely he's not going to exploit uh, like the Romans do. So there was such a fervency. There was a hatred towards Rome. And there was such a deep longing that God was going to come and make this right because we were being taxed to death. It was hard for the average Jewish person to keep enough um, resources to ensure that they were going to be able to feed themselves and their family in some cases. So this leads to two things. People in general hate Roman taxation policies. Just hate Rome. They see it as the the, the great beast, the great anti-God, anti-Yahweh, uh, force for evil in the world but there's a special hatred for tax collectors because these are the people who you're looking in the eye of, it's not just this disembodied Roman Empire, the tax collectors are the people who confront you and say, yeah pay up or the, or we're essentially gonna put an end to whatever your plans are. Now that's just a regular tax collector. Imagine if you were a Jewish God-fearing pious person and that tax collector was Jewish Jewish tax collectors were despised and rightly so these were people who basically had were traitors and seen as traitors to the countrymen these were people who had already had wealth and instead of using that wealth to help other Jewish people they used it to get access to become a toll booth collector, a tax collector, get more money. And how are they getting more money? By exploiting their Jewish brothers and sisters. So within pious Jewish circles, being a tax collector was one thing, but being a Jewish tax collector was an entirely different category. And in the Midrash, the Jewish uh, commentary, there's actually an encouragement that there are three types of people, and I can't remember the third right now, there's three types of people that it's actually okay, um, the Midrash said, to, to actively try and lie against. Uh, one was uh, uh, thieves or murderers, and, and, and I can't remember the third one, and, and or second one, the third is tax collectors. They were seen in, this, in the same vein as like murderous, thieving, evil, despicable people. So when you think about that person in your life, or maybe it's a few people, that in your, maybe your worst moments you say, there was a time, or maybe even still, I hate that person's guts. I feel like the world would be better off if that person didn't exist. That's how almost every Jewish person thought of tax collectors, and certainly would have thought of this person named Levi. He wasn't just working for Canada Revenue, he was like, oh, taxes, wah, wah. This is someone who is reviled. Verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, was going past one of the toll booths, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. Okay, first of all, follow me? Jesus is telling a tax collector to follow him and follow him in a first century context. If if that's coming from a rabbi, that means come and adopt, come and learn under me as a disciple. A few weeks ago, Blair taught that the way it worked in the first century was if you were a tremendously gifted uh, student of the Torah and you went through all the religious hoops and education and kind of got a master's level degree in Torah, you might be able to approach a rabbi and say, could I follow you? And the rabbi had the chance to ask you questions and either say yay or nay. But if he said yes, that was a tremendous honor. We see Jesus turning that system on its head. He goes out to other people and says, Follow me. And up to this point in Mark, he's gone to people that are not the intellectual cream of the crop in terms of the Torah. In the first chapter of Mark, he's called fishermen. Good, godly, pious Jewish fishermen, but fishermen. And that means that they weren't, they hadn't gotten their master's level degrees, they weren't ready for PhD studies and the things of God, but Jesus said to them, come follow me. That was difficult enough for people to wrap their heads around. That's why when Jesus says to these people, come follow me, they drop their nets and they go. This is the greatest honor you could ever have. So those fishermen are now following Jesus, they're following him around, they're watching him teach, they're listening, they're taking it in, they're trying to learn from him what this kingdom is about. And as they're walking by a tax collector's booth, Jesus says, you, come follow me. And Levi does. There's all kinds of things swirling in this account. It is shocking that Jesus, first of all, would want to even invite regular ordinary Jewish people as a tremendously esteemed and immensely popular rabbi. That doesn't make sense. But why would Jesus invite a tax collector, a thieving, traitorish, a traitorous, anti-God, person who their whole life is set up in such an anti-God way. Why would Jesus do that? It's incredibly, incredibly odd. Is he trying to actively sabotage his whole agenda? He's, he's kind of here. He's talking about establishing the kingdom. He, he's talking as if he's going to establish this rule and reign of God. How is he going to do that if his, like, dream team are fishermen, that's a problem, and now the, the most despicable kind of person, the person who's past Jesus shouldn't even grace that person with a look, yet alone invite that person to follow him. How could enlisting tax collectors possibly forward the mission of Jesus it is, it is just stupefying from a first-century point of view. Because it's, it's one thing, again, to call a, a pious fisherman, but to call a tax collector is it's subversion of the highest order. It goes completely against the grain. And Mark wants us to see that what Jesus was doing was sending a very clear message. Whatever this kingdom of God thing looks like that I'm preaching, that I'm here to establish, at first blush, it is going to look absolutely absurd. It is going to look completely backwards. And it will go against the grain of all religious or even secular common sense of the day. Mark is giving us clues that when the kingdom comes, in and through Jesus, it's not going to look at all like people would expect, whether religious or not. It's not going to look like a military overthrow. We tried that with the Maccabees. That worked. It was the whole Hanukkah thing. So maybe if Jesus is going to gather a huge army around him, okay, I see where this is going. Okay, that's not what he's doing. Oh, but maybe he's going to go at it at a different angle. Maybe he's going to pluck the the, the morally strongest, the, the Intellectual elites of the culture, and by and by working at that level, he's going to overthrow Rome through uh, changing, but by influencing kind of the media elites and all the people who are or, who are the who are the top thinkers in their fields, and he's going to kind of get into the universities and all the schools, and it's going to maybe not immediately, but in thirty or forty years, he's going to overthrow by sheer force of intellect and by um, by kind of re-education. You no. Know? He doesn't call super bright people. It calls godly fishermen. And he also doesn't call the morally upright. He calls someone like Levi. Are you kidding me? And it says Levi got up and followed him. And if you understand what a tax collector did, what their life would have been like, you understand a lot is being communicated in that line that we have to read between the lines. If Levi is getting up and leaving his toll booth, he's leaving behind the most lucrative job he will ever have his entire life. There's no doubt about that. He, will, he is leaving behind his golden ticket. But something has been stirring in his heart. somewhere, he's been experiencing a dissonance between how he's living and how he'd like to live. He's come to an end of himself. Maybe he, he must have come to an end of what wealth can provide for him. He's tasted all that power and wealth can afford him, but it hasn't—it doesn't hold him anymore. Something God has been doing something in his heart. He's definitely alienated himself from his Jewish countrymen. So there's social isolation, there's religious isolation. He probably feels very far from God. Probably imagines no Jew for me could ever, no Jew like me could ever be forgiven. I've kind of made my bed now. I got to lie in it. Money and, and wealth is my only comfort. But that is, the ground of that is beginning to break up and he's beginning to say maybe a different life is possible. Levi wanted something that worldly wealth and power couldn't give him. He wanted, maybe he couldn't articulate it, but he, he, he was grasping for restoration. He was grasping for redemption of some kind. He was grasping to reconnect with his creator and to re- reconnect to a mission for his life that went beyond just making more money. He was maybe grasping for relationships with other people. He was so reviled and so despised. He wanted to do something with his life that he felt like actually was going to matter. He wanted to do something with his life that made him feel alive, that didn't feel like he was contributing more pain and injustice and extortion into the world. There was some part of him that was hungering for something different. And so he follows Jesus. There's no hesitation. He says, this is the opportunity that I've been praying for and longing for. And he starts the process of learning from Jesus how to live in every area of his life. When you follow a rabbi, you're not saying, I'm like just following you around and see what you're up to. It means I'm now leaving my entire life as I knew it behind me. And now you are the center of my life. I'm learning from you how to live my life as you would live it. It was a complete holistic life turnaround and commitment. Jesus eats at Levi's house. The first thing Levi does, most commentators will say, is Levi hosts a party for all of his friends in the extortion tax collection business and other ne'er-do-wells just called sinners. Um, he hosts kind of a retirement going-away party. He says, everyone come over to my house. I want you to hear that I've, been, I've decided to follow Jesus. I've given up my business. I've canceled my contract with Rome, and now I'm going to become this guy's disciple. In verse 15, it says, When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So sinners is a word that usually when it's used by religious authorities, they didn't didn't believe that they weren't sinners and other people were sinners. It was a really uh, demeaning term that basically meant we all know that we're not perfect, only God's perfect, but there are people who are essentially good and there are people who are actively perfect bad. And if you're an actively bad person, if you don't have your stuff together and you can't consistently make good decisions and you don't seem to be very righteous, you're a sinner. And they didn't mean by that, I'm not a sinner. It's just, you're a different tier of person. There's, we're all sinful under God, but then there's like capital S sinners. So Levi invites his tax collecting friends, because they're the only friends those guys have, because they're just extorting everyone else. And all these other sinners, we don't know who would have been with them, has them over for a final meal. This is pretty, pretty awkward. Even for Jesus' disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, the people who have been called, they were fishermen. This isn't their circle of, these aren't the circles they swim in. So imagine how awkward it would be for them to step into this house and to see all these people and be like, oh, I I don't really know how to talk. To these kind of, oh, this is awkward. What's going on here? You have Jesus going to eat at this newest disciple's house, so the disciple's are like, hey, this is kind of exciting, but, oh, look at who's here. This is really going to be the most awkward dinner party I've ever been to in my entire life. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Good question. Why would someone as popular and revered and clearly tremendously righteous like Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Because Bible 101, Morality 101, right, you, you, you become like the company that you keep. Right? Proverbs says that. Psalm 1 says. Uh, kind of the gateway verse to the entire psalm says, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. You're blessed if you avoid bad people, sinful people. So they're like, okay, we think we're supposed to obey that command. We do that as Pharisees and as people who are trying to honor God. We wouldn't sit and and stand and and even really Have relationship of any sort with people like this. So how can Jesus claim to be this righteous rabbi? Why should people listen to him if he's willing to sully himself and his reputation by rubbing shoulders with people who let's just name the elephant in the room. They're just they're terrible people. They're bad people. It doesn't it it just graded these guys. How can this person be the Messiah when we're living to a higher standard of righteousness than he is? Complete dissonance for them. And so this is a huge scandal. Jesus spent time with these, um, Jesus spent time with people that the righteous people, the self-righteous people, looked at and said, these people are, they're despicable. They're disgusting. They're scumbags. Why would you connect with them? But even worse than connecting with them, he doesn't just spend time with them; he eats with them. This is um, this is huge. I mean, we, when I think about Matthew's house and, and this whole thing of these tax collectors coming and other sinners, I'm reminded of that scene in the classic, fantastic movie Star Wars: A New Hope. Remember the moss, remember Ben Kenobi and Luke Skywalker, and they're overlooking Moss Eisley and they're about to go into the cantina, and, and, and Ben Kenobi says, You know, you will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. He's bracing Luke. I always picture, I think that, that's what this dinner party was like. It was just full of scum and villainy. And yet Jesus is right in the middle of it. And he's not just spending time with these people, he's at a p- dinner party. And that's, that's a different level of scandal. Because eating symbolized something in the first century. It, it symbolizes kind of the same things now, but it was accentuated in the first century. S- eating symbolized acceptance and welcome and hospitality. And it also symbolized that when you, when you ate with someone, it was a sign and symbol that you wanted to um, become friends with this person. You wanted to befriend this person. Eating was a very political act. Because who you ate with revealed a lot about who you were and what your intentions were. So when Jesus sits down to eat with these sinners, the religious authorities are incredibly upset. It just, it it disturbs them at such a deep level. Because when you eat with people, you're never just nourishing your bodies together. When you eat with people, you're nourishing the relationship. That's always what's happening whenever you break bread with another human being. So there's, there's two flags that go up right away. The first is, does Jesus actually want to get close and befriend these kind of people? And if the answer is yes, why? This is a, a kind of a living art piece that a church in the States did. I love what this, uh, this group did. That They put this scene together to play on the kind of fears and prejudices of white middle-class America. So they set up this picture which shows young black and Hispanic men in conversation with Jesus over dinner. And the image is really powerful because it presents this clash of iconography, right? The white righteous man mixing with the colored unrighteous men. And it's actually very, very helpful because it helps to bypass the images that we have in our heads of Jesus sitting around with he was white and there was other white middle-class middle-aged men eating around a the table. There's nothing subversive about the imagery. But in our cultural context and in certain parts where uh, of, of our Western society where racism and prejudice thrive, looking at this scene give, could give that person that sense of the kind of revulsion and disdain that the religious authorities would have when they see Jesus not just being around these people, but eating with them, like welcoming, like seriously, those kind of people? Doesn't Jesus understand what those people are going to do after this dinner party? What they were doing before this dinner party? Does Jesus see the tattoos? Does he understand the, 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 the gang stuff? Like what, what, is he just completely naive? So the Pharisees are wondering, does Jesus actually want to get close to these people? And the second yellow flag is, if Jesus is at this feast, this big party... What is he celebrating? What's actually being celebrated? Now, some people might say, well, celebrating the fact that Levi has turned his back on his life and his old life and he wants to live a new life. He doesn't want to extort people and be a tax collector. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus. That's certainly an element of it. But remember that for a Jewish person, big feasts, big meals always had religious significance. There's always two things happening when you had a big gathering. God instituted a bunch of feasts in the Old Testament to remind his people of certain acts and events that happened when God was delivering them, saving them, making them a people, establishing them in the land. You have the Passover feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Booths, there's a few more. And these were established so that every year of the Jewish community, you'd have the big feast together and celebrate what God did And having and saving the Jewish people by sprinkling lamb's blood over the doorpost and the angel of death passed over, and how God came and tabernacled with his people in the wilderness. You had all these different feasts. So for religious authorities, their question is this. Jesus is coming. He has come. He says that he's establishing a new kind of kingdom. Is there a new kind of feast? Is there a new dinner that he's adding to the mix? And it didn't make sense to them because their thinking is what great amazing new thing could God be doing that would possibly involve tax collectors and sinners? Again, it's just, it's philosophical oil and water. It didn't mix. It didn't make sense to them. But Mark is pointing us again back to this still kind of mysterious idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus said the rule and reign of God is coming. A real kingdom from God is coming. And what I'm offering, says Jesus, isn't just kind of a new religious system. It's not the old game just with a few new rules. It's an entirely new world order. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of being human in the world. And this kingdom that I'm establishing plays by a very different set of rules. And the good news of this kingdom is that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter your past. It doesn't matter your history. It doesn't matter your own level of self-loathing or the despisement that you have incurred from other people because of genuinely unrighteous things that you have done and that you should take responsibility for. Jesus says, In my kingdom, the distinction is no longer between the good and the bad the distinction that matters in my kingdom is between the humble and the proud if you will sit under me and my authority and you will humble yourself under my kingship you're in the kingdom if you resist my kingdom out of a sense of self-righteousness I'm righteous, I don't need God or you or any of this stuff I'm fine then you're out. It's no longer about who's righteous and who's unrighteous. It's who's humble. Who will bend the knee to my message? Who will receive grace? And who are the people who don't think they need grace? Because of their own self-justification. Because of their own self-righteousness. See, this is why in verse 17 it says, on hearing this, Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He knows what the religious authorities are thinking And he's like, listen, if you think you're well, and all this stuff about the kingdom and repentance and turning and submission to me, if you don't think you need that, okay, that's fine. I have nothing to say to you. But if you are sick and you know you're sick, then I have the cure. Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time with people who will just resist his insistence that they have a kind of soul cancer. You have soul cancer. No, don't. I feel fine. You have soul cancer. Don't tell me how to live. I'll define reality for myself. Okay. You have soul cancer, Levi. I think I do have soul cancer, Jesus. I want a whole new start. Come on. Let's go have a party. In this kingdom, you don't have to be the best and the brightest. You don't have to be the morally superior. All you have to do is be humble. And to receive grace and love from Jesus. It's amazing. It means that in this new covenant, in this new kingdom, in this new thing that God is doing through Jesus, relationship and redemption are based on confession and humility. They're not based on religious performance. Well, Maybe if I get my life together, then God will kind of, I can kind of self-redeem myself and God will kind of be like, hey, I'm proud of you. That was really good. I appreciated what you did there. You kind of spiritually pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. Good job. No, it's not the way it's going to work relationship with God, restoration, redemption is now all about confessing our need to Jesus and humbly saying, you're my king, Will you teach me how to live for you. I'm not, I, I can't, I'm not coming out of my own righteousness, out of a sense of my own moral superiority. I can't religiously perform my way out of this pit, out of my past, out of this mess. I can't religiously perform my way into some grandiose future. I am sick, I have a cancer of the soul and I believe you, only you, Jesus, has the cure for it. Will you help me? But I want you to notice something because this is often used as a proof text, especially amongst... um, That's not fair to say. Sometimes it's used as a proof text by some people who will say, see, the church... Uh, should just lay off people. Jesus hung out with, with sinners all the time. He hung out with ne'er-do-wells and people who were broken. And uh, he didn't judge them. He just hung out with them and he loved them. Which which is an important, um, an important idea to parse out a little bit. What is Jesus offering these sinners who he's eating with? Is he offering them unconditional acceptance? I just want you to know everything's fine. You're okay. I'm okay. It's all good this kind of free, open acceptance? Is is He offering them simply forgiveness? Is He offering them love? Is He he hanging out with them? See, this is the danger. Whenever you hear someone say something like, Jesus hung out with sinners, and therefore we should just be comfortable hanging out with other sinners too, there's kind of a half-truth there. Jesus didn't hang out with sinners, He ate with sinners. And that's different. Because eating is about building a relationship for a bigger purpose. What's the bigger purpose? Well, Jesus tips his hand to it. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I have come to call sinners. I haven't come to hang out with them and say, oh, the stuff you're into, you're a tax collector, you extort people? It's okay. No, no, no. I've come to sit down with you and say, Levi, I know your darkness, I know your pain, I know you're stuck. I'm calling you out of that. Come follow me. I have a new life for you. I love what N.T. Wright says in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God. He says, The point about Jesus' welcoming the sinners is that he was declaring on his own authority that anyone who trusted in him was now within this new kingdom. However, the agenda that he set before, not only sinners, but anybody who heeded his call, was bracing and demanding, come follow me. He put that in front of everybody prostitute, tax collector, Pharisee, fisherman. doesn't matter. He meets people where they are and now says, come follow me. There is no reason, N. T Wright continues, to think that Jesus proposed a second-class option for those whose moral background had not prepared them for such a challenge. It's precisely because Jesus welcomed people into the kingdom that was being inaugurated that he put before them the challenge of the kingdom to live as new creation creatures under his kingship, to be a new kind of people who didn't take their cues from Rome or from what seemed right to them based on their past, but was now taking cues from Jesus. And that's a really articulate, fancy way of saying Jesus embraced people where they were. He met them where they were, but he never left them where they were. You can't look at this passage and say, oh see, Jesus was coming he'd be totally cool with the stuff that I'm up to in my life. Because Jesus is just all about unconditional acceptance and love. No, you're not reading carefully enough. Jesus loves you so much that it breaks his heart. He's not okay with looking at Levi and saying, oh, if you're going to spend the next 40 years moving into a black hole of spiritual death and and depression, like, that's okay. I accept that. No, no. Jesus loves Levi too much, and so he says, come follow me. And he loves you too much to just leave you where you are. He says, I'm going to meet you where you are. You can come and dine with me, but come follow me. I have something better for you. I have a new life. I have a new mission. The gospel isn't if your sins are forgiven, then that's kind of sweet. You got to you have a huge get-out-of-jail card, so just go live the life you want. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God incarnated himself for your sake. He, atone, he died on a cross to atone for your sin, and he was resurrected to usher in an entirely new kind of life and he has a kind of character that he wants to form in us and he has a new purpose that he wants to use us for and so Jesus says now we have to get on to the business of starting to live this new kind of life you were a tax collector that's not who you are anymore you were a prostitute that's not who you are anymore you were a fisherman that's not who you are anymore you were a religious leader you were a, high, you were a teacher of the law you were a religious expert that's not your identity anymore. Come follow me. Few reflections. Practically, what do we do with a, a, an encounter of Jesus like this? Number one, very, very basic. We should have people into our home. We shouldn't just invite other people. Just start within this church. Just Just start within this church and say, "I just want to get to know some people. I want to break bread. There are few things that will create community faster than just sharing a meal together. And ideally, don't just share the meal, like make the meal together. Have someone over, a few couples, a few friends, make the meal, eat it together. Uh, Heather and I were blessed to go out to a number of different people's homes uh, this week and, and have some great meals. And there's just something that happens. There's Eating as a sacred space. And when you do it with a heart open, it's just amazing the community that forms. Another thing that I would think would be really cool that I've seen done before is if there would be two people here, maybe three we would, we would need, who would take it on their hearts. What I would like to see happen is, in February, we put a date in the calendar, a Friday or a Saturday, and we have people sign up to host a dinner, and people sign up to attend a dinner. The hosts say, I have a home, I can handle this many adults with children. And then we have all the hosts sign up, and all the guests sign up. And what you do is, you have these two or three people behind the scenes, very tricksily mixing up the people they tell the people hey aren't this is the address that you're going to that night and the person who's hosting has no idea who's coming they just know six people are coming to their house and we've done that as a church and it leads to like this weird awkward fun funny intergenerational I kinda know this person I don't think I've ever you go to my church oh hi <laughs> welcome and but it is fun and people are like it's just really neat and if I could have just one or two people who would say, I'd be willing to organize that behind the scenes. It doesn't take a lot of work, but it's a huge, huge payoff. It's just so, so cool. And lastly, wh- when we have communion next together on February 7th, will you remember this? Will you remember that the question that the Pharisees were asking, is Jesus actually instituting a new kind of feast? What would be happening? What is Jesus celebrating that is so good that involves tax collectors and sinners? That's why we break bread and drink together for communion. The first Lord's suppers weren't little pieces of bread. They were meals that people had in Christian homes. And it was the, it was the greater Passover meal. It was the ultimate feast of booths. It was the greater Pentecost meal. And it all was about Jesus saying, and sense, the rules of the game are now changed, you can simply come into the kingdom by admitting your need for me. You don't have to try and earn it. You don't have to try and religiously perform your way out of your past or into a new future. You can receive from me, and I will empower you for a new kind of life. And I think when you come up for communion, would you remind yourself that um, Christians should be people... I know we can't do this all the time, and I know this is a big stretch, but I still need to put it out there. Christians should be people who are willing to break bread with people that the religious world looks at and says, but they're disgusting. They're despicable people. You shouldn't even give them the merest edge of your gaze. Why would you, not even spend time with them, why would you invite them into your house? I believe, the, the older I get, the more I believe, one of the most powerful, one of the most effective ways to actually lead people to Jesus, evangelization, whatever you want to call it, effectively leading people to Jesus starts with the question, would you like to come over to my house for dinner? Because God does something in that mix of vulnerability and that sacred space of breaking bread together. And if we are a people who are willing to say to our non-Christian neighbors, and it might be challenging, it might be awkward for some of us, it might be a huge risk, but hey, would you like to come over and just have a meal. And it can, it's okay for a while. It's just a meal. You don't have to evangelize them. You don't have to invite them to church. Just break bread and get to know them. Begin to be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life. Get to know where their pains are, how you can serve them, how you can love them. Okay, here's my close. Really interesting close. Um, Mark, in his gospel, uses the term Levi, 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 all the way up until this encounter. He's talking about Levi through the stories, mentioning Levi this is the last verse. Verse 17 is the last time you'll ever read Levi in the Gospel of Mark. never gets mentioned by Levi again. The name that gets mentioned from that point on is Matthew. And that's significant because Levi is a word that means attached or joined to something. And Matthew is a word that means gift from God. And see, Levi was someone who was attached to a self-destructive, sinful, idolatrous relationship primarily, probably with money and power. He had an encounter with Jesus. Jesus. Jesus freed him from that addictive, life-draining attachment. And by the gift of his presence, by the gift of his grace, by the gift, unmerited, of his invitation, he saved Levi in every single way that matters. In such a way that he just, the rest of the time, Mark just calls him Matthew. And yeah, it's the same Matthew that later writes the gospel according to Matthew. This is Matthew, Mark, this is the Matthew. This is Levi, the one who is attached to the wrong things and this gift from God comes, God's grace. And that's so important because that means it doesn't matter what your past is, it doesn't matter what your past attachments have been, it doesn't matter what your, pa- what your present attachments are. Those do not have to define your life. They don't have to define you and they certainly don't have to define your future. You can let go of those things, and if you embrace Jesus and surrender your life to Him, then His grace, which is a total gift of God, can change you forever. And instead of being stuck in a lifestyle, which just brings more pain and hurt on yourself, more pain and hurt on the close people around you, more pain and hurt into the world, Jesus can give you a new life and a new adventure. But I want to warn you that that new adventure, which Jesus propels you on, it will likely involve more eating and drinking. And it will most assuredly, if you're doing it faithfully, involve more eating with tax collectors and sinners. With people that the world looks at and says, those people are disgusting. They're despicable. But as you break bread with those people, two things will happen. Your heart and your compassion for them will increase. You'll see them through Jesus' eyes. And your thankfulness and recognition that I once was lost, but now I'm found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a pretty good person. No, no, saved a wretch like me. God will do something powerful over that dinner table. Let's pray. God, as we leave this place, help us to leave as a people who are willing to take the, the risk to break bread together with our families with our extended family with people within this church to allow you to do something in that space and God maybe even for a few of us to take the massive risk of inviting some of our non-Christian friends into our lives into our homes God would you give us the faith and the courage to do that and would you use that space God help us to be a people who becomes known as, as a church that that is a friend to tax collectors and sinners, the despised and the disgusted of God. Because before you, without your grace, that's what we are. Teach us to love like you did, God. In Jesus' name, amen.